Okay, then let's uh, continue on in this Gospel of John. The lastly, uh, the last few verses of chapter three. As I said previously, there's loads in this chapter, and I have only scratched the surface. Uh, but you know, maybe as you read and pray and look into these things, maybe you'll see something that I haven't. And if you do, I would be so grateful if you come and tell me, because. Here we are here to uplift and to encourage, and in some respects to teach one another, aren't we? This is not all, all one way. We all learn from one another. So, John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36, we're looking particularly at that last verse, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. In this text, we see that John is still speaking to those disciples of his who would come to make him aware that Jesus and his disciples were baptising and that everybody now seemed to be flocking to him rather than John. He's still talking to these people who would come. And we've already made note previously that John's disciples were quite concerned about this. After all, his ministry had been so popular. Multitudes of people coming out to him to hear what he had to say, to hear him preaching the same message actually that Jesus preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they came out to hear this, what he was saying. Multitudes of people. And they came to hear and then be baptised into the baptism of repentance. But John was not in the least bit concerned about the fact that his own popularity was getting less and less. In fact, what he said was this, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He had already made it abundantly clear that he was not the Messiah. It's scary, wouldn't it, to claim that title for yourself? And yet over the years, centuries and even recent years, there have been people, and still are people, who claim that they are the Christ in the flesh. These people are deluded, and will have to answer to God for that. But he was not the Messiah, and he was plain about that right from the outset. But he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He was to prepare the way for the Christ to come. And this, this he had done. He had fulfilled this part of his ministry. He had done this. And now it was time for him to decrease and for the Lord Jesus Christ to increase. For as we read in those scriptures, he who comes from above is above all. The Father loves the Son and has given everything into his hand. All the types, those shadows in the history of Israel were all now beginning to be fulfilled before their very eyes. The offspring of the woman whose heel the serpent would bruise, and whose foot 
would crush the head of the serpent, now walked along the very shores of Galilee. He was here. This one that was prophesied so long ago was walking along the shores of Galilee. And one who was unworthy even to stoop down and to unloose his sandal strap was humble and he was holy. Unlike that age-old serpent who in wickedness and pride and wanted the glory of God for himself and in deluded arrogance and a gross estimation of his own power tried to overthrow the throne of Almighty God. You see, John knew his place. He wasn't like that old serpent, puffed up with pride. He knew who he was, and what a magnificent ministry he had, and what place in history he has. He was called the greatest of the prophets. And yet he was humble, and he was holy. Because he knew that he was one of the earth, not one from above. He was earthly, and he was one who served the one from heaven. And you know, he found joy in doing so. That was his joy. My joy is fulfilled. I'm happy to step back and to see this one increase. You see, the first point I want to make is this, with regards to this context here, as John continues to talk to those disciples who really are clamouring after this popularity. I'm not saying these people weren't believers. But they just loved what was going on. They loved this life. They loved serving John. And all of a sudden, it looked like the life they'd lived for however many years John was in the wilderness preaching was starting to crumble. But John continued always to point to Christ throughout it all. That was his mission. In this very last verse, John simply and yet profoundly summarises his whole ministry. <coughs> the point of it all. The truth that it was all leading up to. He who believes in the Son. Not John. John didn't say he who believes in me. He said he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Always pointing to Jesus. After that great day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit had filled those in the upper room, and the church was birthed or established. And when the apostles were given ability to perform signs and wonders. In attestation of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they had been given all that. When they have been experiencing all that. Something wonderful that nobody had ever seen before. And those 11, 12 men. And the, the rest of those who were with them in the upper room. Were all party to this. And we see the same display of humility in the promotion of Jesus Christ over and above self. 
Some examples of this are found in places such as Acts 3, 12 through 16. This is when people ran up to Peter and John. And they were amazed because the lame man who sat at the beautiful gate was instantaneously healed. They took no credit for themselves. But they told them that in his name, in Jesus' name, and through faith in his name, that was what made this man strong. And what about when bedridden Aeneas was healed at Peter's hand in Acts 9.32? Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. He called him by name and he said, Jesus Christ heals you. Not himself, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Again in Acts chapter 14, we see a cripple from his mother's womb. He was healed when Paul spoke and told him to stand up straight on his feet. And when the people saw it, when they saw what Paul had done, the people thought that their own gods had come down to them. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. And they brought even cattle and oxen to them, intending to sacrifice to these people. Acts 14, verses 14 and 15 say this, But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. Who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things that are in them. Once again, the deflection away from self to the living God is to him who you must run. We're just men, we're just like you. We have no power. We have no ability. As we read and looked in last week, what do we have that we've not received? What do we have that's not been given us? And they have been given the ability, yes they have, as apostles of Christ, given the ability to work signs and wonders among the people, to attest the new message of the gospel that they were preaching. But it wasn't their power. It was the power of Christ and it was to him that they pointed, always. John continuously points to Christ. Everlasting and eternal life, true life, in the presence of the triune God, where we shall have a new body, one which is sown in corruption and mortality, but is raised in incorruption, raised in immortality and without sin. This life is given to those who believe in the Son. Whilst so many ministries today concentrate on self-promotion, 
teaching how God has given us power and authority in this world. And how much we can achieve by decreeing or declaring in the scriptures true godly saints even those who were mightily used in signs and wonders and godly men and women that came after all deflect glory away from themselves and continuously point towards the Son because He is the way He is the truth and He is the life. When we're looking at anybody, when you sit in that chair today and you look at me and you listen to me, am I deflecting everything to Christ? Am I pointing to him rather than myself? Are we pointing to Christ rather than this ministry? If you're listening to anybody on the YouTube or whatever platform you're on, preaching, Ensure that you're listening to people that give glory to Christ and not themselves. Because that is a very, very clear warning sign. If they are giving glory to Christ, well that's good. But if they're drawing glory for themselves, then that's bad. In this text, it says, He who believes in the Son... As everlasting life. He who believes. So we're presented here with a term that in English, in our English Bible, without looking below the surface, it doesn't really reveal its fuller meaning. The word believe is used in so many different contexts in our language, in, in our everyday common tongue. In our everyday common context, it's used. For example, a preacher may quote a scripture from memory and say, I believe you will find it in such and such a book. They may say that. What he is stating is that he is quite certain, quite sure, that the scripture is where he said it is. But really, there is room for him to be wrong. If he knew where it was, he'd say that scripture is in John 2.21. But if he's quoting something and he's kind of sure, he'll say, well, I believe it's in such and such. We have that kind of context in the way we speak. Another example may be made of a crime that has been committed. And based on the evidence presented, one may say that either they believe or they don't believe the defendant is guilty. I don't know if you watched the Oscar Pistorius trial a few years ago. I watched it. Uh, and I was kind of going from one to the other. Is he? Isn't he? Some evidence was presented and I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this was an accident. And another side then thinking, well, now I'm not sure because that... You come to a point where you say, well, I believe this or I believe that. See, either, either one of these believers could be proved right or wrong at any time based on new evidence that might come to light. So at one point you might say, well, I, I believe that person's guilty. Then new evidence comes to light, you say, now I'm not so sure. And as a child, I believed in Santa Claus. Why? 
Well, firstly, because my parents presented him as real. They promoted the fantasy. And also other kids my age, they believed. I was convinced because of what I had been taught by others, what my peers believed. But as I got older, common sense and the ability to discern truth from fiction prevailed and it was confirmed by those around me. So I believed. And I've got to say, when I was a kid, I wholeheartedly believed. I even thought I saw him. And I don't know about you, if you ever believed when you was a kid, but you could even hear the bells, the jingle of the bells. You see here, go to sleep, close your eyes. I really did believe. But all different types of believing. To believe can also be an opinion that is held. So you might meet somebody in the street and you get chatting to them. And while you're chatting to them, you, you kind of look at them and you, you think, oh, sure, I believe I've met you before somewhere. Have you ever had that? So you may have, you may not have. Might simply be a case of the person looking, sounding or acting like somebody you do know. But you may have, you may not have. But you can simply say at that point in time, I really do believe I've met this person before. Many say they believe in aliens. I've got to say again, when I was younger, so did I. People say they believe in ghosts. The Bermuda Triangle. Some people believe that Elvis Presley is still alive. And some people believe that there was another shooter on the grassy knoll. Not everybody in this room will probably know what I mean by that. Some of you may do. So these things have varied pieces of evidence. Or so-called evidence, we might say. But there's no definitive proof. And so belief is merely an opinion, no matter how strong it is. But if we, if we bring this kind of example of believing into the Christian context and especially at this, the moment to the text we're looking at right now we would form startling and unbiblical concepts of believing in the Son. If you think about believing in the Son what the scripture says and think about all those examples I've just given you we're going to start to form unbiblical concepts, not concepts of what it is to believe in the Son. So surely we don't mean then that having a positive opinion about the Son of God is meant in this text. Is it about us looking at it, having a positive opinion about believing in the Son? Or surely it's not just a belief based only upon what our parents taught us or what our peers believe. Is that what is meant there? Those who believe in the Son, based upon their parents, based upon their peers? Does it mean that we have searched high and low and gathered every shred of evidence possible that the Son of God is real? 
And so we then base our belief on the outcome of our own work of searching. Is that what it means to believe on the Son? Surely that's not the case. Can you rest assured of everlasting life on opinion? Even an extremely strong one. Can you rely on your own work of evidence gathering to secure an eternal fellowship in heaven with the triune God? Surely not. Surely that's not what's meant by believing upon the Son. Another question which I have no doubt will touch many lives in this room, mine included. Have you met or do you know someone who has said at one time in their life that they've believed upon Christ? Maybe they were even baptised. Maybe they attended church. Maybe they got involved. Only to find later on that somehow they no longer believe. Or they've lost their faith. Maybe they even now deny the very existence completely of God. When we look at the parable of the sower, we see that there are different types of ground that the seed fall on. Listen to what he said about the seed that, that fell on the stony ground. Matthew 13, 20 and 21. He says, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Note also in 1 John 2.19, after speaking a few verses earlier, in warning of the loving of the world and the consequences of it, the Apostle John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This is not speaking about people that have particular troubles at times and they go through periods of doubt, maybe. This is talking about those who have emphatically stated that they're believers and then they have walked away and emphatically stated that they're not. They've left, they're not of us, they never were in the first place. He said they were with us, they were, they were among us. But they went, why did they go? Because they were never of us in the first place. There are those that state their belief, as we've seen, the stony places. They receive it with joy. They live in church, they seem the real thing. They want, or at least they appear to want the things of God. And yet, sometime later, they deny the very existence of God. It appears to me that there are many such who, in quotes, throw away their faith. Or go from believing to rejecting. Because they believed in the ways that we've looked at above. They believed because they formed opinions based on certain evidences. 
Maybe they believed simply because they were raised in a Christian home. Perhaps they seemed to receive it with joy for a time. But the scorching power of the world has caused it to dry up and wither. Why? Because they never had any firmly fixed root in the true foundation. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, that some of them are prodigals. Who will come to their senses as he did in scripture. That time will tell. And that God, by his grace and his power, they will come and return to the Father. Who will lovingly receive them home. There are those as well. Those that go away for a time. But notice in the parable of the, of the prodigal son, there's always a son. He never stopped being a son. And when he came home, it was the father who received him. And received him as what? Not a servant that he went back for, but as a son. So be encouraged, friends, if you've got relatives. They could be in either one of these camps, don't get me wrong. But to believe, to pray, to hope that they will come back to the throne of God. And that he will receive them. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated this. You are either a Christian or you are not a Christian. You cannot be partly a Christian. You are either dead or alive. Very strong, very straightforward, but a very accurate statement. You cannot be partly a Christian. You either are or you are not. So when John the Baptist says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life then, what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, those who believe, what is it to believe? Let's have a quick look at Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. He writes this, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgment and do them. Now first port of call, this is a promise to Israel, but it's not to Israel alone, it's to all who have an interest in the promise. And it's clear I will give you. I will cause you. We're reminded again in Hebrews 10 verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts. <coughs> and in their minds will I write them. See, we have to look deeper than just the English word that we see. We have to look into the original language, the Greek in this case, to understand what is meant by believe. As believers, as we've already said, belief can be anything in our culture. And what does it mean here? To believe is not simply to accept a concept as being true, but to have faith wholly in it. Namely, to have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son. To put your whole trust, 
to entrust not only your life here, but your life hereafter to him. Like Peter when he was out fishing and he came back and they caught nothing. Jesus said, cast your net onto the other side. And he's thinking, well, I'm a fisherman. I, I know what I'm doing. I've already tried that, Jesus. You know, I've already done this. And you're a carpenter. You know, it must, must be running through his head. What a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish? It's like a fisherman telling a carpenter how to make a cabinet. But he said, cast it. Cast it on the other side. And what did he say? According to your word, I will do this. That's what Peter did. He, he, he believed according to your word. He took him at his word and he cast his net on the other side and it had a great haul of fish. It is to have no shadow of a doubt. No shadow of a doubt is what it is to believe. That Jesus, through Jesus alone, and his life and his death and his resurrection by which your sins and the consequences of them have been dealt with once and for all. That your salvation rests in him. To believe upon him and his righteousness being yours. Without anything being added to it by you. This faith is not something that we can conjure up. Not something that we can create by being convinced or by searching ourselves. Nor can we assume this faith and this belief and this trust. Merely because we were raised in a Christian home. It's a good start. Can't base our salvation and our faith on that. We can't base it on the fact that we've known nothing else but the Bible, nothing else but church, nothing else but Christianity. We can't base the fact that we have faith upon that. You see, this faith is given by God. The scriptures we've already read clearly point, I, I, it is me, I give it, I cause you. Well, 2 Peter 1 verse 1, the opening statement says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. They've obtained it by the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. It's all a gift of him to you. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you, listen, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. That's the whole of the sermon, that latter part. But he said it's been granted to you to believe. To believe upon him is a gift <coughs> given to you by God himself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where we would regularly go for such a topic. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. You cannot believe unless God gives you faith. It rests in him. Thea tells us that to believe is the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of soul. To trust in Jesus or God as able to aid either in obtaining or in doing something and of saving faith. Something, God does something within you. The scripture says nobody can come to me unless the Father first draws him. God has drawn you if you want him. God has drawn you if you, if you seek him out, if you're asking, if you're praying. He draws you, he does something within you. Irresistible grace. He doesn't force you. He's, you. We're not robots. He doesn't twist your arm and drag you kicking and screaming, coming to him in faith. But he so works upon your heart, your soul, your will, your mind, everything that you are, the seat of your emotions, everything. He so works upon it, so reveals himself to you that you long for him, that you want to serve him. This is what he does. To believe. He's a work of God. This it's this believing, to truly believe. It's an anchor in the soul. It's to be a branch securely connected to the vine. In our flesh, we, we may at times deal with doubt. You know, that doubt in the mind. I know I have. Yet the anchor that's in your soul is immovable. For it is God himself who has given us faith. God himself who has given us a heart of flesh instead of stone. And God himself that has engraved his word upon it. It is in his hands that we are forever placed. And none can prize open his mighty grip on us and snatch us away. It is those who truly believe in the Son then, to whom are given everlasting life. But then the scripture goes on to those who do not believe. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. Oh, what a, what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of a living God. And the fact remains, brothers and sisters, if you don't believe in him this morning, you don't have life. Oh, you'd be sat in the seat, your heart would be beating, your brain, your brain would be working. But you don't have life. <laughs> You're dead in trespasses and sin. Spiritually, and one day physically, dead. See, the word used here, to believe, you read in English the same thing. He who believes, he who does not believe. It's the same word, but in the Greek it's different. The word here used for not believe is different. Where those who truly believe, fully rely, fully trust in, and put their faith in the Son of God, the people who do not believe, they are not compliant. Whereas those who believe are fully compliant. Those who don't believe do not comply. They refuse and they refuse blatantly to believe. 
James Strong helps us by showing that this unbelief is willful and perverse disobedience. Romans 2 verse 8 tells us that those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, for them is indignation and wrath. Self-seeking. You see, what we said earlier on with those who are truly God's people, they're the opposite. They're not self-seeking. They point to him. It's all about him. That those who are self-seeking, they don't obey the truth. They, they obey unrighteousness. For them is stored up indignation and wrath. And then Romans 1, 18-22 show us the way of the unbeliever, the disobedient. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they, came, they became fools. Later on in verses 28 through 32, it says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent and proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. <clears throat> Upon these people, we are told that the wrath of God abides upon them. Those who put their trust in Christ have everlasting life. It is a vain thought, friends, for an unbeliever to assume that God's wrath will not come upon them. And that when they die, they will merely cease to exist. It's a vain thought. Do not be fooled. For it is said in this very scripture that the wrath of God abides on them. <coughs> what is it to abide? Mounts aids us in our understanding. To abide means to continue, to dwell, to lodge, to sojourn, to remain, to rest, to settle, to last, to endure, to continue unchanged, to be permanent. And failure shows it means to be held and kept continually. This wrath abides permanently on the wicked. 
where those who trust in Christ have everlasting life, those who reject him and don't believe will have everlasting death. It will abide on them permanently, continually. Speaking of the wicked in Matthew 24, verse 46, Jesus says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we see, don't we, in these scriptures, John continually points to Christ. That's the way. There is no other way. It's the only way. And he says, those who believe, those who are given that gift from God to believe in our faith, those who put their trust in him, those whose lives are getting lower, more humble and more holy, those are the ones who receive eternal life. But to those who reject, they receive wrath, eternal wrath. Let me just finish by reading this song. And let it be that if you don't believe this morning, let it be you listen to the words of this song. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you, or evil, a victory win? There's powerful, but wonderful power in the blood. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. Would you do service for Jesus your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you daily his praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. And the refrain, the chorus is, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There's power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Friends, that's the only place you're going to find forgiveness of sin. It's the only place you're going to find yourself becoming clean. The only place you're going to find freedom and salvation is in the blood of Christ. And if you don't believe, friends, wrath abides upon you even now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful word that you've given us to challenge us, Lord, to provoke us, to teach us in righteousness, in all righteousness. Lord, I do pray that you open up our hearts and minds. We pray you would provoke us and challenge us. I do pray, Lord, that we might hear such things and find them sweet. For those of us who believe to be encouraged, Lord, we have everlasting life because we believe in the Son. And Lord, that we may rejoice in that, that we may live in the knowledge of that and that it may affect the way we live. But Lord, for those amongst us, if there are any who at this time do not believe in the Son, the truth is, Lord, that if they never come to that faith, they will not see life. And the wrath of God abides upon them. Lord, we pray then, have mercy. We pray that you may give them the faith. Draw them to yourself, we pray. Cause them to know, as we prayed for the children earlier, cause them to know their sin. Cause them to become poor in spirit, that they know their need of God. 
And we do pray, Lord God, that we may see converts in this place, whether from within or whether from without. Lord, we pray and give you thanks, Lord, for all that are saved here this morning. Help us then to live as though we are actually saved and to be witnesses in the place of this country that you've placed us. Glorify your name in and through us and through this church. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.